0: Welcome back to Finnegan's Take. This is the final conversation. Jerry leaves jail and has to readjust to being on the outside. We also cover accusations leveled against Jerry while he was in jail and as a member of SOS. There's also a conversation about a photo. This photo was of Jerry, another SOS member and someone that they had arrested. And then we end with some Q and A. Here's the conversation. When you get out, you're elated, but are you scared? What's the adjustment like of being in jail for 10 years and then being reinserted in your family life and society?
1: You know, at that stage of my life, coming back into my life, uh, my child, uh, I missed 10 years of his life. He was a grown man, mid-20s. I missed quite a few years of his life, his high school graduation, missed my mother's funeral, so it was difficult. A little nerve wracking because you see guys in prison that get institutionalized. They do everything repetitively every day, the same thing every day. You'd see these guys get up and they would do like a ritual and it was almost to the point where like they were almost brainwashed or like I said, institutionalized and I never wanted to be that way. I made sure that I kept my mind right and I didn't, I didn't buy into that. They weren't going to change me for the, and not for the aspect of rehabilitation. There's no rehabilitation in prison. You go in there, you do your time. A lot of the guys who do your time, they come back because there really is nothing done for you in there. There's no job skills given in there, no training. There's a lot of idle time. You can get menial jobs in there that pay very nominal amount of money. If you don't have any support from the outside, it's very tough to get by. I was fortunate enough to have family members. I had some very good friends of mine, former police officers, one that I worked with, one that I did not, and each one of them sent me money every month. Truly phenomenal. You know, they didn't owe me anything. Just phenomenal to to have these type of people in my life.
0: When you got out, did you have this realization of who your friends are and friends aren't?
1: Oh, of course. There are people that I have been in recontact with that are Truly, I consider friends. They're great people. These guys I worked with in SOS and other locations on the police department, and they never turned their back on me. And those are the guys that I still deal with. When I came back, it was a little bit of an adjustment because my so called friends were the ones that I was involved in in criminal activity with when we were police officers. And those friends were the ones that testified at the grand jury at the state and federal level against me. Truly, they were not friends. You learn your lessons uh, in life. Uh, so those people, I, I really no reason to speak to them again.
0: Do people still try to talk to you about it that you worked with in a concerned fashion? Or is the statute of limitations over with it and it's all best that no one communicates?
1: Nobody that I worked with was put in, put in jail or prison because of me. There would be no need for them to ask me about it. It, ha- it didn't happen, so there was no worry for them. Um, but I can say that when I got out, when I came home, it was a strange feeling. You know, I was embarrassed when I'd go out in public. I'd always be looking around to see if anyone was looking at me or did they recognize me? Did they know who I was or what I did? So it took a couple of years for me to get over that. Where I would go out and I would be like kind of nervous, like, oh boy, someone's going to recognize me because I was all over the media and everything. But after a while, I just said, you know, said, fuck it. You know, I, I served my debt to society and it's over.
0: Part of the reason you have told your story is because you wanted to get the truth out about what happened to you and your journey and your life story. But also I know that there are accusations against you while you were working for the police department and while you were in jail that are fiction made up. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of those attacks against your character?
1: Yeah. Well, actually, there were there were two that were uh, pretty blatant. One involved a gangbanger I had locked up for cocaine, and his name was Daniel Navarez. I was informed by a, a detective who lived on the same block as him in Darfur Ridge that this guy and his girlfriend were going out for vehicles and having people come to his house all hours of the day. You know, the night and morning, and this detective was concerned about the safety of his family and himself because of the high traffic. that was very unusual in area of the city. We went over there and did a surveillance, and then we observed some suspected hand-to-hand transactions by his girlfriend and then by him, at which time we went to their residence, rang the doorbell, and saw Daniel Navarrez running from the front to the rear of the house, where he tried to exit the rear door. He was taken into custody, and we did a subsequent search of his residence and recovered a kilo of cocaine. Later, after I was indicted and taken into custody, I was informed that he was suspected in the disappearance and foul play of a young man from Although The kid's name was Eric Kaminsky. So the police had been looking for this kid, and they figured Navarrez was tied into it somehow. I was in custody in the MCC, and I was later informed that they did, in fact, recover. Well, actually, I, I, I learned this through the media. They recovered Eric Kaminsky's body over in uh, Little Italy, area of uh, Chicago, on Coulter Street, when some detectives executed a search warrant on information which would be provided by Navarrez's girlfriend. They recovered, you know, body buried in his basement of Navarrez's father's home on Coulter. He was shot multiple times, buried concrete under a six-foot grave in, in a slab of concrete.
0: Let's just be clear. Kaminsky was found buried under the concrete at Navarrez's father's residence. Correct.
1: So they recovered the body. He was, in fact, shot a number of times in the head and the torso. They made the arrest of Navarez and another individual. I don't know if the other individual cooperated with them, but Navarez stood trial for that murder. Two lawyers, I knew one, did not know the other one. Sam Adams Jr. knew of his father and him, but never was in a trial involved with them. The other one was Stuart Goldberg. Those lawyers were representing Navarez. They concocted a story that I had Navarrez working for me, selling drugs. I was mad because Kaminsky was involved in the theft of drugs, and I told him to have him murdered. Went to trial, and it was disproved. Of course, I had nothing to do with it, but these two lawyers tried to use it as a defense to get their client off, uh, and were unsuccessful.
0: Are you called in to testify?
1: No, absolutely not. The state's attorney's office put on the case against Navarrez, but the girlfriend is a witness. They proved that, you know, I was never involved in anything with him, except for his arrest at one time. But they used it because I was arrested. Tried to use it as a defense against the case against him. But he was subsequently uh, sentenced to 85 years where he died in prison shortly after being incarcerated.
0: I want to pause for a second. This is from findlaw.com. The People versus Nevaris. The case was decided March 30th, 2012. A jury convicted defendant Daniel Navarez of first-degree murder and he was sentenced to 85 years imprisonment, which included a 25-year enhancement for personally discharging the firearm that proximately caused the victim's death. The victim, Eric Kaminsky, disappeared on February 5, 2004. Almost four years later, on December 30, 2007, Police unearthed his body from the floor of an uninhibited apartment building during the execution of a search warrant. The state subsequently indicted defendant with two counts of first-degree murder. Back to our conversation. You're in jail. You understand that you're being accused of something, whether it's a trial balloon by these guys, these lawyers, or an extended attempt to drag you into it. This is this infuriating?
1: Well, it is. So they used me to try to get their client off with no basis. I mean, it was just like kind of like uh, flying by the seat of your pants. And it didn't work out because they had plenty of evidence against their client. The state did. And that's why he was, he was found guilty and sentenced in 85 years.
0: I guess lawyers, everyone's entitled to a defense. And lawyers are going to do the best that they can to get their clients exonerated, but to drag people from the outside into cases seems like it's crossing a line. I mean, there's a notorious history of this in Chicago, the exoneration industry, I think it's called by some, have you, do you have recourse against stuff like this?
1: Uh, no. No, I didn't. I didn't have the ability to do anything against them, and there's probably nothing I can do to gain anything from them anyway at that time because I was mired in my own legal proceedings, so really didn't have the time to go after them. I mean, that's typical. These two attorneys for the type of defense they're going to put on for a client, I mean I wouldn't hire them. If they were able to do something like that. Who knows what else they're doing for the people. From the second case, I was also in the media where a family of a, a young guy that worked in special operations. I never worked with him. Him and his partner were on the other watch, it was called. So when I was working, they were not working. Young guys, good policemen. The brother of the police officer was a Chicago firefighter and he made some statements in the media. His brother was murdered. The kid's name was Jose Vasquez. He was a young kid. Him and his wife, his small children, made some real estate purchases in some not so safe areas in the city. So initially, they had bought a house up on Walnuts off of Kedzie. It was heavily uh, gang and drug infested up there. And, you know, I had joked with them about that area, you know, telling them, you know, you're like a pioneer. I don't know what you to quit moving up here with your family. But it was new construction, and I guess he got a good deal on it. He moved out of that area, and then he moved over to, to like Western Avenue and Harrison. And one night he came home late from working another job, a side job, he stopped to get food at the uh, White Castles on Ogden in Weston. And uh, some robbery crew, some black guys, followed him home and walked up on him in the alley of his townhome and shot him to death. So his brother, who was distraught, and I understand that because I've been there myself over losing a brother, made an implication saying that I was involved in his murder and I killed him or had somebody kill him to keep him quiet because he was going to ex- expose the corruption in uh, special operations. This was not true. He was murdered by these guys who are Robert. crew. Took some personal stuff off um, from what I understand from the media. I don't know if they took his weapon and his star or what. He was, like I said, he was killed in the LA, but unfortunately uh, no one was arrested. One of my old, old partners who worked in the uh, gang investigation section, Uh, had some leads and some informants who provided the names of the individuals who were involved in that murder. And they surveilled them and put uh, a consensual over here, which was a wire on one of the guys who was giving them the information in order to entrap these guys into making some statements. But they never did. I don't know if the guy was telling them that he was wearing a wire or maybe he wasn't leading them down the right path to give them the chance to say something, that the state's attorney's office was well aware of who these guys were, but they never had the decency to tell the brother or the family members that they were investigating it and might have some possible suspects involved in it. I don't know if they ever solved this case, to be honest with you. Like I said, one of my partners who had worked it, you know, was a detective at the time. He told me that it was ongoing and the state's attorney wouldn't let them do certain things. So they weren't really able to bring it to any closure for the family and resolve it. Uh, It pained me to hear about his death because, I mean, I was not close to this guy. He was an acquaintance at work, but he was a very, very nice kid. So was his partner, uh, hard workers, and he was a family man. He had some children. felt bad about the situation. These guys followed him home and murdered him, and his family never uh, received the closure or were able to move on because no one was ever arrested in this case.
0: I'm going to stop here for a moment and read an article from the Chicago Tribune. Dateline is February 13th, 2007. Officer Jose Vasquez made his neighbors feel safer about living in a gentrifying but still dicey stretch of the west side. Sometimes handing out a cell phone number and offering to help if they were in danger. Police learned about Vasquez's kindness to the residents in the 2,500 block of West Harrison Street as they went door-to-door Monday morning investigating the Special Operations Section officer's murder. Vasquez, 34, was shot dead in the gated parking area of his condominium at about 1.45 a.m. Monday after arriving home from a second job, Superintendent Phil Klein said Monday. Police believe Vasquez was the victim of an armed robbery and that it may have been a crime of opportunity with the killer seeing him drive down the alley alone. Quote, personal items, unquote, were taken, but his gun still was holstered, Klein said. Sources said a wallet and cell phone were taken. Vasquez joined the police department in 1998 and worked six years as a patrol officer in a northwest side area that includes several neighborhoods with serious Hispanic gang problems. He was promoted to special operations in July 2004, police said. Deployed to gang and drug hotspots across the city. Klein said Vasquez was scheduled to join the elite SWAT in two weeks. Quote, he was a very well thought of police officer, Klein said. We really lost a good officer today. When the shooting happened, Vasquez was arriving home from working a security job for the gas company, Klein said. He'd called his wife minutes earlier to tell her he was picking up food at White Castle. The killer may have slipped into the gated parking area as the motorized blacked iron gate slid closed after Vasquez pulled in, Klein said. Witnesses heard a brief quarrel and then a single gunshot, he said. From footprints in the fresh snow, police believe the gunmen may have run between the victim's three flat and the house next door and then fled on Harrison Street, Klein said. Quote, the prints look promising, unquote, he said adding that investigators hoped to develop leads from the footprints and from a single 9mm shell casing recovered near Vasquez's body. Police hoped to find fingerprints, but the falling snow and wet conditions made that more difficult, Klein said. Vasquez was shot once in the chest. His wife, who had been waiting up for him, was with him when police arrived. He was rushed to nearby Stroger Hospital, where he was pronounced dead at 2.15 a.m. Vazquez's last arrest was a drug case on the South Side on Friday night, Klein said. Detectives were reviewing cases and arrests Vazquez had handled to see whether revenge may have been a motive. But Klein said robbery appeared to be the most likely motive. Jose Vazquez was 34. Sad stuff. Back to our conversation. You're uniquely positioned to talk about criminal justice. You've been on both sides of it. You've seen all of it, or most of it, in a unique way, being that you were a cop and being that you went to jail for 10 years. Was a criminal? Yes, as a criminal. Is our criminal justice system broken? And if it is, how is it
1: fixable? The recidivism rate is very high. I can't speak of the state level because I didn't serve any state time. I served the federal level. There's a lot of repeat people coming back in like a revolving door. I would see guys that would leave and I'd say, Hey, best of luck to you, whatever. And then three months later, I'd see him back in there. I go, what the fuck happened? And my, you know, my probation officer's an asshole, this and that. They did this. And I'm thinking, dude, it's not your probation officer. It's fucking you. Your attitude, man, you know i I didn't tell him that, but that's what it was. Fuck her, fuck him, I'm not doing all this, and I'm not doing that bullshit, fucking they could violate me, okay, well, they're gonna violate you, and they send them back, but these fucking I'm just gonna do seven more months, and then I'm done with my paper, my probation, dude, I don't know about you. I don't want to sit fucking three days more, let alone seven months back in prison, so if I get out. Like I did, and I have stuff that I have to follow and follow their parameters. I'm going to do what I have to do to finish my supervision. It's not probation anymore. I'm going to do A, B, and C because at the end of the day, I want to be done with it. And I don't want them coming to my house. And I don't want to have to go downtown to see them. I want to get on with my life. But some of these guys are just knuckleheads. And the minute they leave prison, They go right back to their old ways and they're out here back to selling dope or back to cash and bad checks or robbing banks or whatever. So, unfortunately, uh, you know, those are the guys that that, that they made that prison industry for because that's what it is. It's an industry. People don't realize there's money being made off of not prisoners as a whole, but the system. There are businesses. It's called Unicor. And the federal government has these. And these companies, they get contracts with private companies on the outside to produce furniture, produce clothing for the Army, for the Marine Corps, for the Navy, to do drawings designs for new McDonald's or Popeye's chicken. They do it on a CAD system in there. This is all being paid to the BOP, and the BOP pays these prisoners like a dollar fifty an hour, the guys who are doing that type of work. They're making good money that they think, truly as a prisoner. You know, most jobs in prison pay thirty cents an hour. So these guys are making a dollar fifty and they think they're getting rich. But there's a lot of prison industry and all these companies are making money off of the prisoners. Personally, there's no rehabilitation. You're not getting job training. Bring in fucking ten washing machines and ten dryers. Bring in some air conditioners. Hands on, let these guys learn how to put this shit together or fix something on it. And then you can send them out there and they have a job that they can learn or teach them something else that they can get their hands on. Show them how to do plumbing. Show them how to do electrical work. Do it in the prison. It's free labor. The problem is they don't want to go into that and have to train these guys. I don't know if it's because they it's a security thing or what the deal is. But there's a lot of idle time, and there's nothing being done with these guys. They make them get GEDs. If they want to take courses on the outside, they have to pay for it themselves from colleges or community colleges. There's nothing in there for the betterment uh, of individuals. You leave like you came in. A lot of times, these guys, they don't have anything going, so they just go back out there and do the same thing they were doing.
0: When you were in jail, did you find that you were more sympathetic to other people in jail did it make you look back at your policing or the sos that whole system is wrong and it's creating criminals did you think of it that way at all
1: no i'd pick their brains and i just ask them you know certain stuff and they lie to you i would catch them lying to you they would give you an excuse this is why i did this this is why i did that i couldn't find a job and okay You couldn't find, I mean, there's so many fucking jobs out there, it's it's impossible not to find a job. And I'm not saying 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I'm saying now. As far as a lot of these guys, they had been criminals uh, probably most of their adult life. And some of them as teenagers. So you were not going to change the way they looked at things or the way they did things. Now there were some guys that I talked to and they were first-time offenders, and they got slammed. I mean, 17 years for, like, marijuana cases? uh, That's a lot of time. So I say, how much weight did they catch you with? Oh, they caught me, like, 300 pounds. Okay, that's a lot, but 17 fucking years? You know, because they got caught up in a conspiracy, they were involved with some guys that were cartel-level guys, but they only had a certain amount that, you know, at that time, so, I mean, there were some factors involved in it, but I don't know. I mean, I, I met some guys in there. They tell me the story, and I go, listen, I, I'm not saying you're lying to me. I just, it's hard to believe. Well, it's true. And then I'd say, okay. And then sometimes they would bring their paperwork over. Here, take a look at this when you got time. I'd look through, and I'm reading their case, and i be like, holy fuck, this guy is telling the truth. He got railroaded. It depends on what jurisdiction it was. These smaller, like counties, and these collar counties, even in Illinois, man, they'd launch these guys on shit. They'd Cook County, you'd be in and out. They'd roll you through the revolving door, continuance after continuance, and then finally they'd give you probation or supervision or whatever. But these guys in these collar counties, and even some of these like states out west, they roll them up. One guy was taking cars across state lines cars but he was taking them and stripping them down so i mean he probably did probably 15 cars you know pickup trucks cars some bigger trucks and you know they gave this guy 20 years because it went across state lines i guess he had no criminal background i mean he just hammered them and it was like in wyoming so i'm not like sympathetic neil but i hear some of the stories some were just these guys were straight wires so you're like uh-huh okay but you know, when they'd ask your opinion, you know, what about this? You know, what if I, you know, I go listen. I'm I'm not an attorney, unless I saw what you got charged with and everything. I had the case reports. I really couldn't tell you. And some of these guys who had their paperwork, you know, felt bad because I mean, these guys had no criminal background, and and they they rang them up.
0: It seems like now there's this pendulum that swung so far to the notion of no one should go to jail for really anything. I mean, that's maybe a little extreme, but that the penalties need to be reduced and that jails are evil, which seems extreme to me because throughout history, there's always people that have to be separated from others. I don't care if it's 5,000 years ago and there are people living under a a rock in somewhere around the globe, there's going to be bad people doing bad things to other people and they have to be separated. So the idea of not having jails is insane. And I think we're seeing the effects of that right now, of course, certainly in Illinois and Chicago, there's always going to be a pendulum swinging and there's always going to be people who are unjustly put in jail, but you got to be able to put people in some place to protect
1: society. Absolutely now the world's upside down and, and like myself, I mean you know I, I broke the law. I'm not arguing that I should have went to prison. I'm not you know I didn't expect not to go to prison. It's just that I didn't think my crime and my punishment were just. It is what it is. like I said, these other guys that were involved with me, who served one month, every one of these guys served one month in a Cowler county. Way outside of Cook County, somewhere, I thought that that was kind of ridiculous.
0: Let's talk about that a little bit. These are individuals who, some of them were in SOS before you got there. They were doing exactly what you were doing, and maybe some of them were doing more. And because of you being "quote unquote" the ringleader. It was like a piling on. It was musical chairs. You got caught without a chair to some degree. And then there was people who had political connections who skated out. Is that one of the things that you're most bitter about?
1: Yeah, I was bitter because, you know, we all were partaking in and doing things equally. And I just felt that these guys were kind of kissed because they took state cases because, of course, they all cooperated right away. They went into the grand jury. So they got good deals because the state's attorney wanted me. So that was it. I mean, they used those guys to get to me. They were out there doing the same thing I was doing. I just thought it was kind of crazy. Unfair? I don't know. Life's unfair. But, yeah, I was a little bitter because I just thought it was kind of a joke. Because if you go from one to the other, it's basically the same. And then they're going to say, well, they didn't didn't say they they were going to kill a bunch of cops. A bunch of cops were not going to get killed. I mean, I can go into it over and over. Like I said, the state cases were all fucked up. They were never going to put them on. You know, they had to go fishing and go to the feds to get help. And that's what it amounted to. Keith Herrera, he got his parachute because he wore a wire on me. And that guy did some crazy stuff, but he served them up. Because he wore a wire. So he cooperated. Salinas, Jose Salinas, and... Frank Villarreal, same thing. They went to the grand jury. Basically, Bart Maka, same thing, went to the grand jury. John Brzezinski, of course, started it all. He went to the grand jury first. Tim McDermott testified at the grand jury against me. Brett Rice testified at the grand jury against me. So did Jim McGovern, one of my partners. They all walked with nothing. I don't even think they all got official misconduct. It's mostly theft. Brian Pratcher. Donovan Markowitz, they were out there doing the same thing. But like I said, I guess if they went in and he testified against me and gave the big fish, that's what they wanted. So that was it.
0: When you went to jail, the SOS was shuttered. Wasn't that an inevitability regardless of what
1: happened to you? There were a couple other things. There was a shooting on the west side. I want to say it was one of those streets that I started those investigations on. It could have been the Volta or Francisco right there in the 1200 block where one of the SOS guys, I think he killed the guy. The guy was armed. Of course, everybody in the community is going to say he wasn't, but they made it a bad shooting, or they tried to make it a bad shooting, but it was a justifiable shooting. Our, Of course, our scandal, the biggest thing that caused it to uh, shut down, there were other things. I mean, there were a lot of complaints against other guys and everything else. So. We were probably the straw that broke proverbial camel's back.
0: Is the SOS missed today? Is part of the problem with what's going on in Chicago part of the problem? We know there's other problems. A lot of them that are not police problems. They're foisted on the police by politicians, bad laws, bad judgment. What has replaced the SOS? Is it still exist in a different name or is it sorely missed?
1: All of that bullshit in 2020 where everybody turned their backs on the police and they were the bad guys. And the mostly peaceful protests that caused billions of dollars of damage, including arson and shootings, multiple policemen, some killed, some shot, some beat. One of the guys I know knew his father who was ended up being an exempt member, a commander. This guy was a great guy and his son is a great guy also. And he made police lieutenants But when he was a sergeant, he was the one that was hit in the face with the bottle, with the frozen bottle down there, lost quite a bit of sight in his eye. All of that stuff that went on, and the police basically were villainized, that turned the tide in policing. It started in Ferguson, Missouri, and grew with Floyd from Minneapolis, and it just magnified and just kept growing, spreading like wildfire The lawlessness. And the police were backed into a corner, not supported by their bosses on the police department because their bosses are politicians. They take their orders from the mayor in this city and most other cities and the police commissioner or the police superintendent, as it is in Chicago, which are politicians. When you become the superintendent of the Chicago Police Department or the commissioner in New York City Police Department or chief in any other city. You're no longer a police officer. You're a politician because you're worried about your ass and your pension and your money you're making from your big salary. So they're going to do what the mayor wants. And unfortunately, this city and other cities, it was chaos. I watched it unfold on the news. Could not believe. It just blew me away. And I was sitting there watching. I'm thinking, where's the fucking gas teams at? Why aren't they putting gas down? to disperse these crowds. And I'll tell you why they didn't do it. Because that mayor, who was the previous mayor, Rightfoot, wouldn't let them utilize gas. In these other cities, they probably did the same thing. They were worried about the image on the news media. So fuck the billions of dollars in damage. Fuck the policemen getting hurt, people getting killed, regular citizens and innocent people getting victimized. They're more worried about how it looks on TV and the police are going to come down heavy handed and oh they're spraying these poor people who are demonstrating peacefully. No, fuck that. That's what the ISPR tanks are from. And you put the pepper spray on them, like we did during the bull stuff when they were tearing stores up on the west side and the south side. And you shoot C S and C N and that disperses the crowd. And that takes the fight out of them. And I'll tell you, that's going to clear the area. Lightfoot didn't want that picture on TV. She was a U.S. assistant, U.S. attorney at one time. So police don't want to do anything anymore. I don't blame them.
0: You have a family, you have a
1: pension. You're going to be on the fucking cover of the newspaper. You're going to be on Channel 7. When a policeman's killed, it's a fucking 30-second clip. When a policeman beats somebody or is accused of beating somebody, it's on the news for fucking days.
0: You know, who's very good on this topic is Andrew Claven, Who's talked about how policing is downstream of bad politicians. The politicians enact bad laws or ignore laws. And the police are the front line of having to deal with these bad decisions or lack of decision-making and they become the bad guys. And I think that's, that's pretty accurate, but, In Chicago, can you put the genie back on the bottle, or can you find stasis again? Is there a way to get back to some balance? No,
1: I'm not an expert on policy. I'd leave that for somebody else, but let me tell you something. The policy they've been using, it sucks, because this fucking city and all these other cities are out of control. You have people, just in the news, a girl downtown, A flight attendant, 23 years old, was in town shopping. Some fucking mental throws a log like a javelin through the ear, hits this woman in the head. She's on life support at Northwestern, 23 years old. This guy has been arrested 61 times. He he was from Cincinnati, and then he came back to Chicago. I mean, he's out on his business. That's what's going on out here. It's chaos. The guy was punched yesterday downtown, hit his head on the ground, Died because some homeless guy asked them for money. It is so fucking out of control, Neil. If you go into the city and spend your money in a restaurant or anything else, you're a fool.
0: A city is a business and it offers a service. And part of that service is safety. And if people feel like that business is not living up to what they're going to buy, If I could use that metaphor, the business fails. And I think Chicago is suffering from not being a great business opportunity for people. And there's people who live in the city and own land and property. I was talking to a guy the other day who owns real estate in the city and uh, commercial businesses, and he's one individual. His stories are horrific in terms of dealing with crime and how the city handles it and the disrespect and...
1: And hope when the election comes, Neil, but, you know, people will talk a big game. And then when it comes time, they fucking vote for these same morons again. So they reelect them. This guy's got, he's pulling at 28% right now, this Johnson. He squeaked in office. Just hate to see what the city's going to be like in three years under this guy. I truly hate to see it. The police right now, there's no chasing cars that are committing armed robberies. None of that. Because the city is more worried about a lawsuit than they are about catching these bad guys.
0: But are they worried about a lawsuit? They seem to settle everything. I saw a statistic recently that they've doled out half a billion dollars in settlements. They don't They just settle. There's not even a pushback
1: by a the word if it goes to the jury and the jury decides they're going to have to pay four times that. So they'd rather settle it. But it's like anarchy. This city is out of control. Guns are so rampant now, Neil, And these cars. If you go on in these social media, you see these thugs on there fucking showing their guns while they're driving around in the city. Nobody's stopping them anymore. They're not tearing their cars off, getting those guns. So if they're not tearing their cars off, they're going to drive around with the guns and they're going to do their drive-bys and their robberies. Yeah, but the gun laws are only enforced for law-abiding citizens, Neil. They're not enforced for these fucking thugs out here. Where now there's no bail, and they keep going to court and they get a gun, they get another gun they're shooting on the street they get another gun, so you know the judge oh okay, I'm gonna let him out. he's gonna go home on home monitoring, and then the fucking guy's out there doing something on home monitoring, shooting somebody or carrying another gun so it's hard
0: if you magically tomorrow woke up and were the mayor, or the chief of police, or the superintendent of police, I should say, and you could do whatever you wanted to get the crime under control, what would you do?
1: There's a call the gang unit in, in the police department. So that gang unit, it could be led by people who will get results. Some of those people are not police officers. They're retired bosses. Bring them back. Bring those people who have that expertise who are in that gang unit as sergeants, as lieutenants, as commanders. Bring them back and change the philosophy. You have to go after the gang leaders. That's the only thing that's going to change it. Yeah, you're going to get guys on the street corner shooting, and you're going to get guys with guns. you go after the leaders and put the leaders away, that's where it's going to start fucking hurting them. Or you're going to put pressure on these leaders, and they can't take that. If they can't take that pressure, they're going to tell these guys, hey, we got to back down a little bit. That's the only thing I can think of. Nowadays, the police, they're they're handcuffed. And like I said, I'm I'm not making excuses for them, but why should they be in the media? Why should they be in the newspaper? Because they get out and they're fighting with a guy and the guy gets choked out and he fucking dies because he's on dope. Guess what's going to happen to that cop or his partner? They're going to be tried in Cook County court, especially under this state's attorney, And then they're going to fucking launch them because they're not going to get a fair trial here. So, yeah, I hate to be a pessimist. I don't see it turning around, Neil. You would think that the tide is going to, you know, turn, but I don't see it, Neil. I really don't. I mean, it seems like it's getting worse by the day.
0: It does. It does. And I don't don't think it's an anomaly. There are people that will tell you that because of social media and everyone has a camera in their hands, that it seems worse than it is. And I think that's accurate to a degree. People had a very narrow window into crime because it came through limited media sources. Now it's 24-7 on your phone. But it makes it feel like there's a lot of crime, but there is a lot of crime, and it is worse than before.
1: Oh, Oh, there's a lot of crime. The numbers aren't right. Neil I'll tell you that right now they're fudging the fucking numbers the robberies the murders are down on it bullshit
0: well and I think to, to the new media point of that the powers that be cannot control the media because of Twitter and Instagram and these other. so you see it now and people know it's bad but something has to give because the city cannot continue and the state of Illinois cannot continue to function this
1: way. You know, what will change when they get rid of this guy who's running the state, when they get rid of, when they get rid of this mayor, there's, there's other mayors out there, whether he be black, white, Asian, Hispanic, they can do a job. That's not so worried about being, uh, you know, cow to your highest donor.
0: This mayor, I've watched, I've given him the benefit of the doubt. I don't think that he would admit that there's a gang. He doesn't think that it's a thing. He uses fancy language that seems robotic to try to... It's like a Jedi mind trick to try to get you to call him something else. Today he was doing it, and it's unfortunate because he's not dumb, and he can lead... But to act as though there isn't really a problem, it's as though he thinks it's racist or bullying to call certain people criminals or gang members when they actually are. And the people that get hurt the most are not white people in the suburbs. They're, the, they're minority groups in those troubled areas. So it's unfortunate.
1: is a fucking pig. Call them a pig. That's what they are, man. Interest them up any way you want. But I'm going to tell you something. That message, like you just spoke of, Neil, until that message comes from the fifth floor that says, I will not tolerate this anymore, I will not tolerate children being murdered or women or innocent victims being targeted, until language like that comes out and he tells the superintendent of police to stand next to him and says to the superintendent of police, I'm going to need to authorize you to go out there and take the action that has to be taken correct this issue or if he doesn't want to say it on the news say it behind closed doors he's not going to do that because he's not that type of guy
0: what is your opinion of the Chicago Police Department where it started and where you ended as an organization do you have a bitter taste in your mouth about the Chicago Police Department
1: you'd probably be surprised to hear this but I don't I was actually proud to be a member of the Chicago Police Department. I have a lot of respect for the guys and the women that are out there doing that job today, especially in this environment. But on the other hand, I feel bad for them, as I do for all the suburban guys and all the other policemen throughout the nation because it's a fucked-up job right now. That's why they're begging for people and they can't get them. 99.9% of the people that go into police work they don't go into it for the financial aspect of it. Because, yeah, you're going to make a lot more money now than you did before. But most people go into police work because that is their calling. Why well, should say the majority of them. They want to be out there helping people, and they want to do something that's a job that's exciting. I don't have an animosity towards the police department, Neil. I put myself in the situation I was put in. I see some of the people that have been promoted to the upper echelon of the police department. Some of the people, I know their backgrounds. They didn't do much police work. I'll leave it at that.
0: There's always people that are really good at manipulating systems or operating within systems and to get up that ladder. You know what I mean? They know how to play the angles. They know how to kiss up the people. They. And maybe some people just aren't good police, but they're good in some administrative or higher position. But I sure hope so. But well, you can hide a lot, too, of course. But, there's high, but this is any system, I think. There's every. You go into Hollywood and you go to a movie studio, it's, to, it's not policing, but the same, the same human characteristics of people behaving similarly to get to the top. But the Chicago Police Department fucked you. To some degree, you admit to doing dumb things and bad things that put you in this position, but did they turn their back on you? Well, do you feel like they could have stepped? We talked about this, but do you feel like they could have stepped up to protect you better when the chips were down or you don't have animosity about that either. And you feel like, well, you got yourself in this position. What, What can they do? To help me, I'm on my own.
1: I, I mean, I, I put myself in that position, Neil. I don't hold it against the police department. Although I, I can't say that I'm aware of some of the things that the internal affairs division was doing, with the blessings from the bosses that were against our rights, they did some fucked up things during the investigation. It's unfortunate that they operated that way. I don't hold any animosity as far as the police department as a whole. It was the best job I ever had. I loved it. Thought I did very well at it met a lot of good people, had a lot of good experiences on it, uh, lost some good friends that were killed in the line. You know, unfortunate. I'm not sour about it.
0: Are you looking back at all to your career of these conversations yeah. stirred it up, yeah. or are you looking back and looking at your jail experience?
1: There were some funny things in prison, you know, like funny stuff that happened, like situations with I've seen guys do dumb stuff funny conversations. People said dumb shit, but I don't think so much about the prison stuff. The police department, I look, you know, I catch myself looking at the cars when they go by to see if I know anybody. But unfortunately, the fucking guys I know are on by now. You know, there might be a few here and there stragglers, but most of them are retired. I would have had 33 years if I would have stayed this long, if I never got jammed up.
0: If you didn't get launched, what would have happened to Jerry Finnegan in the police department?
1: Oh, I would, have had to go, I would have had to go work inside somewhere, Neil, or find something because, I mean, you know, fuck. There's a certain time. You don't want I mean, I saw guys, old guys working out on the street, you know, like in the district, I mean, you could probably get away with it. But like in a unit like SOS where you're fucking with gangbangers 24 7, you know, when you're out there, it's just I don't know. After a while, it's like a young man's game. So it's like, you know, you see guys, they go inside, they're working. And I mean, that would have drove me nuts. But I mean, I would have had to find something to do because I just they would have to try to go back to the airport somewhere or oh here. Or.
0: How do you curtail the gang culture? There's been gangs forever. Chicago's had Irish gangs and Jewish gangs and Italian
1: gangs. We know the history.
0: Is there a way to curtail the gang activity or is it always just containment?
1: In the capacity, you know, in SLS, you, you would come across guys who are the leaders of areas. You know, when street stops, the gang investigation guys—those are the guys that would kind of get in the uh, meat and potatoes. They would set up surveillance on them, set up you know wiretaps, authorized wiretaps, and stuff like that, and and build a case on them. That's the way to get the leadership. You should get lucky, and you get him on a street stop, and he's got a gun, or he takes off on you, and you get him with you know a bunch of dope or a gun or whatever, and he's a bad guy, he's got a bad background. Neil, it's changed in a short time. The amount of time I've been off the street. It's changed now. All of these gangs now there's so many offshoots and different names and sex and you know they call them you know here and there and they get they have just strangest names. you like, and I read, I'm like, what the fuck is that at? It's, it's about making money. You know, the killing comes along with it, but it's all about money. Gang violence. I mean, if they would just get, fuck, sell you, dr- sell your drugs, sell your dope, whatever. You got to fucking shoot people. They're fucking stupid. And they want to take over somebody else's areas that are always, they're always fucking fighting over the stupidest shit. Or somebody says something disrespectful and now it turns into a full-blown, they kill somebody and now they want to kill somebody. and You know, the retaliation. But our fucking gangs in Chicago are probably the most violent in the nation. Los Angeles has a shitload of gangs. But look at the murders in Los Angeles compared to Chicago. New York. They have these offshoots like the Latin Kings out there. Those guys are—they're not like the Latin Kings that were in Chicago. So I mean, it's like a different thing. There, there's nobody out there fucking marching. There's nobody crying. These fucking little kids are killed, or these women are gunned down. Where is it? You know, where's BLM? It's like fucking crickets. You ain't gonna hear shit. You know, but if if some fucking guy gets killed by the police, and they're marching. What's going on, and why aren't they doing this? We want answers. Where's the answer for those little fucking kids that are killed by strays? You know, a stray bullet comes through and kills a little girl, a little boy. Uh, and so, like I said, these fucking kids are trapped. And like I said, you Neil, know, it's it's a vicious fucking place. Chicago is, and like you said, the tide's going to turn. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We would hold.
0: Let me ask you about this photo. So, I'm not sure when the photo was released. There's a notorious photo of you and another member of SOS standing over somebody you arrested who's African-American, and it's posed in a way as though he's an animal that you hunted. And you guys are smiling, his tongue's out of his mouth. I think the photo was, my memory is, and this could be inaccurate, that photo was released during Rahm Emanuel's mayorship, and it was leaked... Somewhere in the Laquan McDonald shooting controversy of the cover-up of Rahm not releasing the video of Laquan McDonald being shot, and then someone leaked this photo of you, and they're trying to smear Rahm Emanuel. But this photo is something that you've never spoken to. I've never even asked you about it. I don't think I have. Like, What's the history of that photo? It looks bad. You're smiling. The guy who's got the tongue stuck out of his mouth is clearly... Playing for the camera. What's the story behind that photo?
1: So we arrested him, this kid, in uh, 600. Uh, I believe it's like 645 North Avers. That particular block was a crack block, also a weed spot. Tons, tons of weed and coke you know, crack being sold there on that block. I want to say it might have been the stones, not the stones, I'm sorry, the souls. And one of the souls, the black souls over there, this kid, he was Lavar Span's brother, the gang leader Lavar Span, who I had arrested too. He had been arrested for a number of things, murder and everything else. Bad dude. I had no idea this was his brother. We get him with about 90 dime bags of weed. He's coming out of the gangway, and we're standing about a half of maybe house away. And he sees us and doubles back and starts running. We get him into custody and we find big bag, clear plastic, you know, Ziploc bag, like the gallon size. It's loaded with dime bags. So sort of look looking around, nothing else, no guns, nothing. Now we know it came right out of the house there because the father that there are the leader, that fucking father was friends with the previous district commander there in the 11th district. I mean, these guys were fucking tight. So nothing ever happened to this guy. And I'll think of this guy's name because, oh, Dana Starks, Dana Starks. I think he became the first deputy superintendent, if I'm not mistaken. But Dana Stark testified on his behalf at a hearing for them to take the house away as a nuisance to the city. And his police commander went there and testified. You know, he had never had any issues there, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, so we take this kid, one of the guys in our unit had some antlers uh, in his pickup truck, pretty big antlers. He had just come from a hunting trip. It was my idea to take the photo. I always said, we were like the predators and we would go out and hunt. So we would go these blocks. The minute we came onto the block, we would hear car alarms, you know, tweeting. And then we would hear people making like noises, you know, woo woo or something else, a couple whistles or whatever. So to me, Neil, I mean, and I know it's fucking my sixth sense of humor, but I equated it to, us being the predators and hunting. So when I grabbed this kid, I said to him, we're taking him into a station, I said, if you let me take a picture yeah, you, I'll cut you loose. So the kid looked at me and I go, dude, I'm not liking your underwear or anything. Okay. I just want to put these antlers on your head. Like we were hunting. Yeah. You know, and shot. you." Yeah. So he agreed because we were going to cut him loose. I mean, it was fucking weed, uh, Neil. I didn't care. It was a juvenile anyway. So we put the, it might have been six, 17. So I put the antlers on his head. I told him to stick his tongue out. The to roll was, you know, like his tongue out and roll his eyes back. And we had the photo. Two guys that were working the sort car came in and took the photo. They were instant photos. So I took one, to McDermott, who was in the photo with me, he kept the other one. I put on there. I put in black magic marker. This eight-point buck was shot on Chicago's wild, wild west side. Was it a stupid thing to do? Yeah, probably. He was a black kid. If he was a white kid or a Mexican kid, and we were working in that area where it was a Mexican or a white kid, that's who would have had the horns on, the antlers. It made no difference that he was black. That just happened because we were in the 11th District that night. I mean, there were no, was not racially motivated of a gag photo. It was dumb. It was my idea. Take full responsibility for it.
0: There's an article in the Sun Times about it. Now, the article in the Sun Times doesn't show the photo. There is a photo, though, of Mike Spann. There's a mugshot of him. He looks like a minor. I, I suspect he's not, or the mugshot would have been published. But he passed in 2007 in a drive by shooting.
1: And that's unfortunate. Like I said, it was more
0: judgment. Do you, over time, I think some of it was while you were working, but also while you were in jail, take on the persona of, I don't want to say a cult figure, but a notorious figure. You kind of become like the focal point for policing in Chicago, good and bad, through the 90s and 2000s. I had heard about your story specifically I remember reading about it on the paper and hearing about it, but also I had a friend who was acting in a show. The character was kind of based off of you, and he was interested in talking to you. I think there's a video game character that's riffed on you. You've kind of risen above just being a cop that got into trouble or a dirty cop. And why is that? Is it partially because... Of just timing, or is it also because you were really a effective cop, and then it turned upside down?
1: The Chicago Tribune, the Chicago Sun Times, the news uh, here—I would say probably has to do with the state's attorney's office and the U.S. attorney's office to make their case. But the implication was, you know, I was the most corrupt police officer in Chicago's history. If that's what they choose to say, that's fine. I know I was not. I won't name names, but there were guys that were doing a lot of stuff that a lot were worse than I was doing. That were indicted and went to prison in Chicago. Guys who were putting drugs on the street, selling weapons. Like I said, I'm not trying to minimize what I did. You know, I broke the law and went to prison for it, and rightfully so. I served my time. The good stuff that I did far outweighs the bad. I could go on to say myself and the guys I work with, we did a lot, a lot of good work. Saved a lot of people's lives. Had a great effect on changing the tide and the crime in these neighborhoods and making it safe for people. I think those days are over. Truly, we were very effective at what we did. If they want to paint me as the most corrupt policeman in in the city's history, no. I I mean, they're going to put what they want to put. I know what I did and what I did not do. I can't change their view, but that's what sells newspapers. They like to see stuff like that about the police. I told you this before, you know, when a policeman does something that's bad, it's magnified and it's over and over in the media. You know, they keep playing it over and over.
0: You want to have these conversations and tell your story. For me, as a film producer, your story is compelling because it's a rise and fall. It's full of drama. It's Shakespearean. And I think it will make a great film or television show. But why have you chosen to open up and tell it now? I know in the past you've been approached by companies and newspaper outlets. Why have you decided to speak now and tell your story? How do you want to
1: be remembered? I'm going to be remembered for the bad things I did. I'd like to be remembered for the good things I did too. Although I became corrupted and stole drug money, I'm proud of the fact that I did a lot of good police work save people's lives, literally. Went out there and was effective, actually making it safer for the people that I served and the communities I served. I never took the stance that, well, I don't live here or who cares, man, this is not my neighborhood. I went out there and I took it personal. I took it personal that these kids were out here and couldn't play safely on the street or women or there were many victims in these neighborhoods. I worked in minority areas of the city for the majority of my career. And I felt good. I never took that stance that who cares or it's eight hours and I go home. I mean, I I took it personal. And I like to go out there and get the bad guy. And I like to make it where I could see these kids playing and not, not being victims or, you know, women being beat down or raped or murdered it's unfortunately the stupid decision to still build money. The greed, you know, overcame me, and I just said, well, ah, what's it gonna hurt?" And in the long run, it hurt me. I think I did more good than bad.